Episode 243 of the No Persinium Podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro Studio, a.k.a. the kitchen table, a.k.a. the place I am pretty much all day long, every day. Uh, (laughs) This week on the show, we have Sarah Ellis of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Yeah, no joke. Uh, Sarah was going to be one of our speakers at... The Here Summit and Festival this past weekend, but of course, as you know, everything's, you know, on pause. Uh, Sarah is an award-winning producer currently working as Director of Digital Development for the RSC, exploring new artistic initiatives and partnerships. We're going to get into what all that means and uh, some of the interesting stuff that the RSC has been doing uh, when we get into the interview. The interview is also an AMA. We did an Ask Me Anything we do these now. Uh, here in this new era, uh, we're recording the podcast uh, on Discord, specifically on the Here Discord, uh, which is now available to all those who are either backers of the podcast on Patreon or who are badge holders of the Here Summit and Festival. Uh, we had kind of open enrollment going on for a while, but now it is locked uh, to uh, those who are backers. So just $2 a month gets you in. Uh, to the listener level and uh, anything you can do beyond that. Of course, it's completely ridiculous to be asking money from people at this time, and I know that, but unfortunately, we also all need money, Uh, so we're carrying forward. Uh, Speaking of that, uh, we're going to jump directly into the Patreon bit of the show, and then we've got other things to talk about. So I want to thank you uh, to our latest backers, Jonathan Bunce, Rod Slack, Jennifer Au, and David Markland for jumping in. Also, Monera Mason, Rebecca Longworth, and Ivan Askwith all up to their pledges uh, this time out. So thank you all so much for, for doing that. Um, we had we had crested uh, last month because of the call. We had like about 20 people jump in. It was fantastic. We lost some ground. Then we regained some ground. It's just, it's just chaos. And I understand all of our lives are chaos right now. Uh, and hopefully there'll be less chaos going forward even as we settle into what is the most chaotic year I've ever seen in my life, and I've been around for a hot minute. Um, Adaptation is a thing that we do. Um, And uh, one, adaptation for just survival. There's a lot of creators out there whose shows closed up, don't have a source of income, so they're trying some stuff out online, seeing what they can make and do. We are chronicling that over at the Now Playing Indoor Kids page on the website over at nopersinium.com. Uh, you can find it on the front page. It's also in the, the lead of the Now Playing section because all the other parts of the Now Playing section aren't, aren't functioning at the moment. Uh, we've also got um, the newsletter. The North American newsletter has been converted for the time being to the Now Playing uh, Indoor Kids newsletter. Uh, we're on volume three at this point. We had 10 new things today. And someone did a count. Uh, there's like 33 listings in Indoor Kids right now. Uh, and we're going to be breaking some of that stuff down and and, and smoothing it out uh, in order to keep it flowing and make it as useful as possible to everybody. There's a lot of work going on, uh, even though we're just in the beginning of this new phase, this new era. And uh, there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of misses. Uh, there's going to be some hits. Uh, there are a lot of the folks who uh, 
already are experienced at doing remote work, uh, haven't jumped in yet. Although you will find uh, Candle House Collective has uh, jumped in and are doing uh, new work uh, or, or remounting previous work. Uh, so give a look-see for that over at the Indoor Kids page. Uh, we also put out the newsletter this week was a little longer than normal because there were a few things we wanted to note. Uh, to be honestly, we we wrote a uh, we I I wrote a newsletter part of the thing this morning and broke down a few a few things. Uh, one of the most admirable was uh, a bit from the uh, Beat the Bomb folks in New York City. Uh, they've gone and done something uh, pretty remarkable. Uh, they've They've built a browser game uh, called Fauci's Revenge uh, for uh, a Beat the Virus-themed uh, uh, initiative that they're doing. Uh, Beat the Bomb, uh, traditionally, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a section of their, their game where people wind up wearing like uh, you know, PPE, personal protective equipment, uh, because there's like a, a, a paint bomb thing that goes off if you don't do it on. You're very kinetic. They've given away all their PPE uh, to the hospitals, and they're raising money uh, to buy more supplies for the hospitals, which is absolutely a great thing to do. Uh, and so you can find the links to that over in. And, and one of the things they're doing is, is to entertain people is this browser game, which is a, a little kind of Galaga clone-esque thing that they built in Unity and they have it on Itch.io. Um, so that's in this uh, you know new newsletter thing. Uh, some news about the underpresents because they're extending the actors in it. Finally get to talk about that, which is very exciting. Uh, and it's also going to be coming to Steam soon. So just a lot of a lot of good news. A Gone Home is free right now over on the Epic Game Store if you want to get that. So there are things to do uh, to keep you from, you know, just spiraling out on Twitter all day, which is what I do pretty much all day when I'm not working. Uh, and in fact, I wound up spiraling out more probably than I work some days, which is no good. Got to try and stay focused. Got to kind of be here for you. Anyway, that you will find on the front page of the website as well. It's the Indoor Kids Volume 3 um, Games Galore, I believe is what I called it. Uh, and that's a letter. And we might have that as kind of a regular feature. The the, the letter part of the newsletter may be a, a going a concern, a going concern going forward. No, that's too many words. Too many words. The Noah Nelson story. Um, okay. <laughs> couple other things here. Uh, let's note, because uh, we've been sloppy about it of late, uh, the sustaining backers of No Persinium are Mark Balthazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, Sidney Guillory, Jeremy Charles Hahn, and Brittany. Uh, again, patreon.com slash no persinium. Just looking for the two and the five dollar levels, and there are Discord roles attached. So if you want to listen to this live, if you want to participate in the AMA, in the call-in section of the show, that's how you do it now. Uh, yeah, 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 drop a little money in. Not too much, because no one has too much, but we just need a little money from everybody to keep ourselves going. All right, uh, let's see, what do we do here? Uh, we hit you up for the Patreon, we let you know who joined up, we explained uh, the new Discord thing, uh, we told you about the newsletter and the, the letter part of the newsletter. I think we're good. Uh, one thing I want to pick out of the, the events that are going around, there is a pretty nifty thing happening uh, in Los Angeles. It's called Vampire Dot Pizza. Um, the Gals from the Wild Optimists and some other folks have gotten together and they've designed a, uh, a, a dinner game party thing.
thing pizza delivery service. So you get a pizza and you get a game delivered or contactless pickup over at Melrose and Fairfax. Uh, you got to kind of live in like, you know, you know, a centralish part of Los Angeles. Uh, so north, north central area, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, my area kids in it. Kind of, you know, just, just below Griffith Park. You live below Griffith Park all the way over into WeHo. Eh, you're probably in, in their zone uh, or need. Go go pick it up. Uh, there's a puzzle game to be played. Uh, a little little immersive dinner theater-ish thing, I guess, is what's going on here. I haven't played it yet. I haven't gotten it yet. Uh, also, I'm here by myself, an entire pizza by myself. Let's face it. This is going to happen at some point. Uh, <laughs> I am going to eat that old pizza. But I think I need other people to play with. So, um, you know, maybe at some point there'll be some other versions of it that uh, for the people who are sheltering in place by themselves. Uh, excuse me. Safer at home by themselves. But uh, this is a pretty nifty thing. Like someone's already like rolling out something. Um, and uh, just innovation and, and thinking new ways. And also it's an excuse to eat pizza. So check that out. It is uh, in the Now Playing Indoor Kids section of the website and also is on the Newswire. And uh, just, just I, I, I love that people are trying things. I really do. Okay. Um, we got to keep our spirits up here because uh, this is literally the, the strangest time the the absolute strangest time we had it feels so long ago but we did have a really excellent series of salons and amas this past weekend to mark what would have been the live version of here uh michael tara garver talked uh risa puno talked we got sarah to talk uh, we did a storytelling salon, which was just wonderful. About 50 people in the Discord, all at different tables, talking with each other. Town Hall had about the same, and a few more people at it, you know, just kind of going through the stuff. We captured all that. Uh, just just getting folks uh, connecting and engaging with each other and looking both what they can do in this moment and looking ahead. There's There's a lot of work I know, and this, this is the hard part, and this thing can be disheartening. There's a lot of work ahead of us. Um, there's just there's just a lot, and the thing is, is like I, I there are days, there are days, and I can't do it. I had to take Monday. Just I just walk away from everything for Matt. There are folks I know who are just really stretched out, thin, emotional uh, by this. Uh, there's folks like me whose language is completely <laughs> abandoned them, as you just heard. Um, also I've been watching a lot of letter Kenny, so I'm developing like an Ottawa accent or something. Anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's getting funky. Um, Ontario, Ottawa, Ontario. I'm lost. I'm lost. I do not know how my brain works anymore. There's, there's apparently a Cleveland television station that has a segment called what day is it? Uh, and they're, they're like only halfway joking. Uh, so this is getting out to you, uh, Friday night. Normally we're about Friday midday on the West coast, but nevertheless, and, and indeed like people aren't listening to podcasts the way they are. So podcast is, mm, you know, English failing left and right. Maybe I should pick up a different language. Um, I just want you to know that if you can't deal some days, that's all good. But on the days you can deal just do a little thing, a little thing for the future, a little thing for the next times, all right? Because they'll, they'll, they'll be here. They'll be here. And this is our time to get ready for them, all right? That's all I'm asking. 
That's all I'm doing. That's what I'm trying to make myself do every day. A little thing for the next time. If I can cut out the chocolate, I might even lose some weight. All right. That's enough of this preamble stuff. Um, here's what you're going to hear. There's a, a nice chunk of time. Sarah and I have an interview. And then we get um, we get a couple of questions fired off uh, in all this, in this uh, kind of AMA mode. And uh, it's uh, it's delightful. Um, so not not a not a huge number of questions on this one. Uh, other ones we've got we've gotten more questions, but uh, this is just a, a a great way to have some interaction here. Uh, so uh, Catherine's going to have a question. Uh, Patrick McLean and uh, Tara Khan. Uh, so two members of No Pro Team and and one person uh, who's performed a lot in uh, Sleep No More. Mm, then she fell. Mm. Normally I'd edit that, but I'm too tired. Uh, and normally I'd edit that particularly because uh, it was her performance uh, that uh, demonstrated to me the power of immersive uh, right from the start. Okay, and yes, you just heard my, heard my phone buzzing because someone's trying to text me, and unfortunately, it's one I gotta go look at. So with that, I'm gonna check these texts, you're gonna listen to this podcast, and I will see you on the other side. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us, uh, whatever time it might be in your neck of the woods. And with that, uh, our guest today is Sarah Ellis of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Sarah, what's your title over there? Uh, it's Director of Digital Development. All right. Um, so what what is what is the Director of Digital Development for the Royal Shakespeare Company do? Like, what kind of projects do you get into, for those who don't know? Well, it's the first one they've ever had, um, and primarily my role is to lead on artistic partnerships and initiatives that sort of drive us forward into be a 21st century organisation. So I work for the artistic director, Greg Doran, and um, I also work across a lot of the company to explore how we extend a theatre making toolkit uh, through immersive technology and also how we respond to new forms of storytelling. Um, and it's no secret that the, the innovation of the printing press allowed us to keep Shakespeare's plays performed um, over the last 400 years. So it really sits well with us as a company to, to bring in new tools that will allow us to think and, and imagine those plays for audiences today, but also audiences in the future. So my job is about bringing in people to the company to collaborate um, using their superpowers who may not look like us, may not talk like us, sound like us, work like us, to provide an alchemy for us to explore creatively how we could reimagine those plays and other plays of new writers as well. When we met, we met um, at the Sundance New Frontier and there was there's there's projects that go into the virtual reality realm um but i'm, I'm wondering how un, we'll, we'll have some of the conversation will be about like life you know ac and then some will be about life bc um <laughs> um <laughs> yes BC, no bc and ac the reverse we'll, we'll start with bc and then we'll go to ac um Wow, that's 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 difficult to do with the brain, nor, given that we normally talk about. Anyway, um, 
I am not ready for a conversation this morning in any way, shape, or form. Uh, luckily for you, you're you're at the end of your day. Um, <laughs> before all of the world went to hell in a handbasket, uh, what kind of pro- what what what, is, what kind of projects uh, were you were you getting involved with uh, over there, and 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 that uh, particularly ones that bordered on uh, kind of our immersive realm, be they mm. be they physical or digital, or sometimes like a hybrid of both. Yeah. Um, so yeah, before BC, um, so I've worked for the company for about 10 years and over that time we've sort of evolved uh, exploring um, the technologies. But I suppose one thing that we learned pretty quickly is that theatre's always worked in virtual reality, so it sits really well, um, but its definition of virtual reality may be slightly different um, to how we look at it in, in different sectors and, and communities. And um, so a lot of my work has been not looking at the device, but looking at the principles around virtual reality. Um, and previously in 2016, for the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, we looked at The Tempest, which is his last play, and put um, had a real-time digital avatar perform the character of Ariel live on stage with real actors um, and that was quite um, a moment for us and since that moment um, it's garnered a lot of interest within the company about how we could take that forward so we we've always based our decisions around the creative and the text and so looking at um, the sort of digital avatar as a form of, of sort of 21st century puppetry is how we see it we're having a live actor in a motion capture suit drive a character but their character can physicalize in a way that they may not be able to physically it can um, transform and shape shift into lots of different visual images Um, and it has the capacity to to sort of look at character very differently and from there that was our main stage and then we very quickly pivoted to well if that's our our stage we know what about the stages we don't know yet So then we started to prototype and look at how a performance could be on your tabletop or how a performance could be um, in a new definition of cultural space. We sort of see lots of audiences now have their own cultural spaces and define them and how could we be part of that. So we were looking at um, a device then and we we collaborated with Magic Leap um, to create a short R&D piece uh, which was a volumetrically captured actor performing the seven ages of man speech with a a digitally designed stage um and again looking at not just character this time but character and, and environment and place mm. and 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 mapping that together and then most recently that's led us into a large consortium exploration called audience of the future around live performance and i think the joy of collaborating now not only with technology companies and, and people that are making this work from a gaming industry, but other forms of live performance such as orchestral music or festival or or um, digitally um, created organisations such as Marshmallow Laser Feast um, and wonderful theatre companies such as Punch Drunk that have dealt in an immersive physical way for a long time. And so that's made us look at how we can have a a physical and virtual real-time experience with multiple stages and I think that what's happened recently will 
make us reimagine that more digitally than it has been will be physically but i think mm. a lot of the thinking will, of what we've been doing over the past few years will go into that maybe you can maybe you can roll back and, and expand out this this idea of digital and physical um in, in multiple spaces because that's that that's something that's like kind of come up in a few of our discussions over the course of the weekend um this this idea of like you know, we we had an AMA with Michael Tara Garver yesterday, and there was you know there's you know, we were talking at one point or she was talking at one point about you know like something like you know we get like twenty abandoned drive-throughs you know throughout the 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 country right and like you know like if you had these spaces that weren't being used like what could you do in them and like install in and then you know th these ideas of like you know when things move from like the, the digital, you know, there's, there's a digital side to it and there's a physical side of it. So it's something we can instanced in a lot of different ways. I'm wondering if is that's the kind of way that, that was being thought about of, of like popping up a bunch of spaces that also had a, a digital yeah. component that then tied together. I mean, there's so many different ways. I'm kind of curious what the shape of the thing was. Yeah. So, I, I mean, a lot of the work we do is in real time and there's something around like us being together now and, in real time that there's a, a, a theatricalization of that there's also a jeopardy is is that it's not a pre-recorded perfection piece of perfection it's actually got you, you love it for its um the fact that it, it could go wrong or, or not even could go wrong but could be better it could be the best performance that you've witnessed or or yeah. bring together something really special because it needs the audience as part of it so we were experimenting with um how you can have a physical performance, but but have a, a remote audience that knew they were make had an agency within that potentially, potentially helping the story of the play, potentially helping bring that play to resolution, um, and that could happen through your mobile phone or it could happen through uh, a headset and and gluing that all together, and again what we did with the Tempest is we created Ariel the character in Unreal. It was made in a games engine and, and that 3D space um, allowed us to, to think about the synchronicity between physical and digital space. And in the work we were have been exploring recently is, is can you make everything within the games engine and allow you to then pop, find, find the, um, the stages um, within that uh, cross platform. And, and it's very... Um, it's very much R&D at the moment, but it's very much something we're seeing that provides a thread through. And I think rather than the siloed looks at um, performance, there's something quite interesting about that to give creatives a thread and for them to, to, to curate that. So that's how we were approaching it. Um, and it, it's still very early days, but that's what I think that's what was unifying it. And we found working with gaming writers and um, gaming designers uh, alongside theatre designers and theatre writers, there's this brilliant matrix that gets formed because a gamer goes super deep. Um, of what I've witnessed, I'm not an expert by any stretch, but it goes super deep in the story, super deep in the characters and uh, with a huge backstory. And then with the, the playwright, with the theatre writer, very much on that thread of narrative very much on that thread of how that how you take that audience through and, and bringing that together has been super super interesting as a process 
I keep on thinking about how games are so much about systems and and building building systems to create worlds like right down to the level of you yeah. know, the physics engine in a, in a game um you know in order to like you know, create effects and dramatists are you know when when they're working at their highest level it's about the relationships between the characters which is itself a kind of system and so like the, the these these two types of thinkers who think about systems different systems but meshing together to create something that starts to feel even more like a, a living, breathing world. Yeah, and I think that's that's it. It was always a sense of truth that the writers have had, a sense of authenticity, a sense of believability um, in that world um, that really brought them together. And, and it's taken a while around the language set up of it and also some of the speed of it, like a, a theatre writer will go and reflect and think about uh, a lot of the sort of, the reasons of why that character has done something and, and work that through and, and a systems building writer will, will work in a slightly different way and I have to say it's been an absolute joy to see those brains kind of wrap themselves around a play or wrap themselves around a, an idea a narrative and, and work with that and I think I think more of that will come and I think it is a theatrical and I also think our stages are shifting and emerging particularly now um, for us to think quite deeply about where we place those stories um, and so the theatre making toolkit in itself is not just expanding now but we're not just bringing in new tools we need to learn how to use those new tools in a different way. I want to remind everybody that they can uh, drop things off in the AMA queue as, as we go uh, I'm going to follow up on, on this line with, all right, so so that's there's a bit of a snapshot of, of where things were. Obviously, things are, are changing right now, and everything's still fluid because none of us know what the shape of, of the current situation is going to be, i.e. no one knows how long stages are going to have to be dark or how quickly we can get people, you know, meeting together again. Uh, but mm. But... What what are some of the conversations that you're having right now about about the projects you were working on and how they might adapt into, you know, think, uh, yeah. the things we expect about what's going on? It, it's a, think, it's a rough question, but yeah. No, no, it's a it's a rough it's a it's a sketchy answer, I'm sure, but um, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, um, I I yes, yeah, so the projects we've been working from have been, yeah, absolutely affected uh, by by where we are at now and how convening in real life in person um, it's not possible for us at the moment um, but we still there's still an appetite and a curiosity around how then you do find that and how you do through this get a new form of connection um, in that way and I think that where we what we're doing at the moment is reflecting and pausing uh i think a lot of the work out there what we're doing needing to do and have needed to do over the last couple of weeks is kind of content triage um with the content that's gone out from our organizations in the arts and culture sector um and the projects i'm working on because they're in r d have a have a luxury of stepping back for a bit and watching and seeing what the public mood is 
seeing what audiences, the future audiences will want through this and responding to that. Um, and I think when even when we do come back in person, what we want to say, the words we want to share, the stories we want to share might feel a little bit different to what we've been working on recently as well. And we have to be mindful of that. Um, and we have to think very carefully about the authenticity of connection. Um, and what I mean by that is that theatre is so physical. It works with touch, it works with senses, it works with um, all of those senses culminate together. And, and I think it's about unpicking that for a little bit, um, sharing, sharing what we can right now with the resources we have and helping that grow. But in terms of when we're looking at meaningful connection, um, on devices, uh, looking at isolation and having someone feel connected through those devices, we have to think very carefully about that. So in a way, um, I think we'll pivot. Um, but because we're looking at making something in a ga games engine, that gives us huge flexibility on how we share that and what we do with that. So that's where we're at at the moment. Um, and then more broadly, as a theatre, we're we can, we're, we're part of a community, and so we're we're on multiple platforms, not necessarily in performance, but we're on multiple platforms where we can commune and listen um, and share. And I think one of the positive things I've seen is how our different communities are coming together to collaborate and solve that together and, and look to work together. So we're reaching out to our different communities that, that may be more vulnerable or, or less vulnerable or whatever, um, and, and riding that out. Um, and yeah, kind of looking at the tools we have at the moment and then looking at the tools that we might have in the future and how we look after that. Yeah, there's, there's a way in which right now there's, I can think of a few pieces that we saw at Sundance that if they could be, you know, shuttled out to at-home headsets ASAP would, would some, in some ways be like a great relief, yeah. you know, to be able to like, you know, have that sense that you're in a space with people again. Um, and, and there's, I, I hope, I imagine there's people like, you know, working on some of that stuff, although it, like the current situation makes it hard for some types of work to occur. Um, but other, other things like delivering what we've already got in the pipeline is, is a little bit easier than maybe someone trying to like, you know, stage some new motion capture work and, and get that up. Um, but, but there's definitely a way in which I could see the, the, the appetite, that need to connect. Um, there, there are pieces that kind of get the simulacrum of that. I just, I just think of like, you know, connection isn't necessarily about actual touch as much as it is about, or, or can be about the tension between, you know, one body and another never touching, right? And how much, how much energy gets generated that way and that you can still simulate that experience in, in VR pretty, pretty easily. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think, like you say, it's perception. It's sort of like, uh, how do people feel touched, if you know what I mean, rather than the physical side of it or, or, or how we redefine that. But also it's like, you know, looking at people feeling joy or people feeling um, together um, can be created quite simply. Um, 
but we can go quite further in the work that we've been doing and, and, and help give people broader sense of, of what that can be through through some of the work that's been created. And I think that's super important. And again, then it goes back to, you know, making sure this these devices are accessible to everybody. And, and um, that's not that's not necessarily the case. So how do then we think about what what stage do they have? What platform do they have at home that we can be on? And that's where we need to think about how we make the work in an accessible and inclusive way um, uh, to make sure that that's that that that, that people do feel that they can connect um with what we're doing but yeah it's it's interesting to look at um all of those technologies that we've needed uh say like like you say motion capture or volcap there's still a lot of in-person um heavy lifting work there um and i think that through what we're going through right now there'll be a self-organizing of connectivity from our audiences and again, we listen to that and we listen to the places that they want us to be. It's super important. There's a question in the AMA queue. Oh. And I think I know who has the question because I might have peeked. Uh, Catherine, uh, why don't you call on somebody? Yes, I'm going to call on myself. Oh, hey. So, hello. Sarah, I know, right? <laughs> um, hello, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, my question is, as the RSC began working more and more in a game engine like Unreal, what were some of the technical challenges that were surprising to you? And what were the, some of the new exciting possibilities that emerged through um, experimenting with uh, something like Unreal? Well, one of the hilarious um, new possibilities is when you get someone that knows nothing about how to work in a games engine, the questions that you get asked or the things that you can do are just totally different. And I think that's the alchemy that happens through collaboration. So in um, when we were doing the Tempest, we, we needed to make Ariel fly. And um, in in gaming, in gaming design, obviously, you have gravity. And also you have, um, it's very sort of, not photorealistic as in like human realistic, but it's, it's, it's got a high level of realism in what you're designing. And our, our designer Stephen Brims and Lewis who's an amazing theatre designer just didn't have that taxonomy didn't have that knowledge or understanding of how you create something in the games engine so we were like for a week scratching our heads how to make Ariel look like he was flying and we were using some traditional stagecraft and then he went could you just turn off gravity and they were like no 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 you don't do that and he's like oh could you just and then you know, we turned off gravity, but then what Stephen does is, is he, he, he the design was of like Ariel was like a particles design, and he just gently phased out the legs, and within that moment, it absolutely turned Ariel into this sort of transformational character that could fly, that could merge, and those I feel are new possibilities in how we express ourselves creatively with with um, games engine technology so that we look at the design differently because the great thing about theatre is that it creates rules when you come into that space and if I say um, this table is, is, a, is a spaceship if the believability of that is that the audiences sign up to that and I think that sort of alchemy and um, seeing that but then also for Stephen to look at his, his design in, in, in such a um, immersive, immersive way, um, very upfront, rather than waiting till it's in the theatre. 
uh, was a really great experience for him. So I'm seeing that come through. So I'm seeing a lot of learnings through process and a lot of learnings through how we're making it. Um, that may be less obvious to the audience, but very apparent to us. Just just to clarify some stuff here as I'm as I'm picturing this. Uh, Ariel was realized, I imagine, through projections. Yeah. Like on the on the stage, right? Yes, I or, can share a link. Actually, is that helpful? Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, helpful helpful for us uh, us in the in the chat. In the, like for yeah. people listening afterwards, like they'll they'll need Not the so they'll need the word picture. Yeah. <laughs> like so I mean, I can drop it in the show notes, but like, so like I'm imagining like there's like like projections that could be put in different spaces, or was it or, or were there like screens like you know monitors or or what so it was designed so it was designed for our main stage um the entire stage was projection mapped uh we used 27 projectors surrounding the entire stage so it went from the games and so it went from motion capture suit which uh the live actor wore which was an xn suit with um 17 sensors in that so you could see him move in person on stage and then you saw his digital avatar appear so you had the real sense of puppetry um oh so he was on the stage yeah performing and and the 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 sprite was being projected at the same time on top of each other or in different spaces or both so you had these massive 40 foot moving projection surfaces of mosquito net that were moving around and the projection was mapped onto the moving surfaces. And and there was one scene where it projected onto him. Um, and effectively, yeah, the whole stage was a surface for Ariel to appear. Um, yeah. And you know I'm a theater nerd because the first thing I thought was like, imagine what Bertolt Brecht could do with that. <laughs> well, quite. Well, quite. I mean, a field day, right? A field, um, a field day. It's yeah. like, All I can show the artifice, but the artifice can be amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. at the same time. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, it did. we had to have it make sense. Otherwise, it would feel like, why would this not be baked video or something like that? So. So right. the rule that was the rule, um, and then his avatar appeared when he was cross, transformational, uh, and um, like yeah, became his personality drove his avatar, which was also another made it much more meaningful for when when it appeared. That's that's I mean uh, I I I love that in so many ways. It reminds me there was. Um, Oh God, uh, I'm gonna forget the name of the project, but the Canadian filmmaker Guy Madden had um, this road show he would do. So he had made a movie, and uh, but it was a silent film, and so he had the orchestra and the foley artists and uh, and um, uh, a fake castrato, whatever the hell you call those. There's a technical term for it. I can't remember right now. Um, and in each city. Uh, a different, um, a, a different uh, narrator. Um, God, like I'll, I'll look it up later and put it in the show notes. No, I won't. I'll just everyone Google based on what I just said. I'll forget that I even <laughs> mentioned this in about two minutes. That's the way my brain works. But the, you could, you could, you could watch the film. I, I had the pleasure of watching the film in two ways. You could, they, they would send the film out. You could just watch the film, and it was uh, the 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 non roadshow version was narrated by Isabella Rosalini. So, you know, it was wonderful. It was great. But the live version, you know, you're at something like the Castro Theater and the film was being projected, but you could see the orchestra and you could see the Foley artists doing the sound effects live and you could see the, the narrator. And it it created this this just like sensorium, like 
there was always something to look at. Even when if you decide to space out for a second, you found yourself spacing out on like the Foley artists and, and at points you could just kind of like pull your vision back so you could watch it all unfold together. And you were watching the thing be made uh, in a very real way. And somehow that made it all the more real in, in an imaginary way. Yeah. And I can imagine the same kind of effect of watching the performer, watching the digital avatar at the same time um, totally. just becomes, yeah, just becomes this, this, this frisson. Um, I think we, we accept that in theatre. I mean, Katie Mitchell's work is phenomenal and does very similar, has very similar ideas within that. But yeah, I mean, Ariel could be 40 feet across the whole stage, you know, to amplify his character as well. It's, it's That's the interesting thing about it is, is, is that Mark Courtley, the actor who performed Ariel, was just able to experiment with his digital self as well and, and see that evolve and emerge and he became much more physical in his performance as the performance went on uh, mm. and he just got to grips with that and that was super interesting and great to see and I think it's again it just unlocked something and an unlocked approach which um, you know motion capture technology originally used in healthcare so you know it was it, understanding how you could physicalize it but yeah you can what you can do with that those that thinking um, allows you to look at ghosts or, or spirits you know in lots of different places in different ways or yeah it allows you to think about that um but yeah i think we've got another question yeah we do trick haven't we uh do you want me to we... yeah no uh Catherine, yeah. go ahead and uh uh get our next get our next caller all right patrick you should be unmuted great thank you um so i for a little context for my question uh we did a town hall here on Discord last night with a lot of people um, from all over. And at the table I was at, kind of talking about the state of immersive theater, it was from someone from the UK. And they were talking about kind of the funding situation there in conjunction with how the digital space seems to be being integrated more and more. I wouldn't say pressure to do it, but like, a definite push to do it. So I was just mm. really kind of curious if you could speak to uh, London and England's kind of push to really explore the digital space with live performances. And then kind of more importantly, maybe, is there a difference between how it's evolving in the publicly funded institutions versus the private, you know, like West End type productions at yeah. all? Or if there is a I difference? Mean uh, there is a slight difference to how the public funded institutions and the private sector work. I mean, but then you look at something like Harry Potter, which was a West End show privately um, funded. Digital delights in that, you know, tricks and magic that you just wouldn't know how that was achieved. Um, and then alongside that, you get um, beautifully crafted uh, performances within public funded institutions that are in, I think, all sectors of the arts and culture, whether you're public funded or private enjoy innovating um, and they'll have different models to achieve that but um, the craft of which they're working with um, and the artist that they work with isn't always that dissimilar so I think that's important to say I think from the the push towards digital um, particularly for public funded organizations has come through a required a sort of more broader approach so it's not just artistic but it's about accessibility and inclusion and it's about um 
getting some some organisations fit for purpose uh, in in the 21st century. And it's about, uh, yeah, it's a broader conversation around that. So those agendas have come through that. And so that can be slightly more broad ranging than just a, a creative uh, response. Um, and if we look now and what we're going through, actually, to have that digital inf infrastructure around our content being able to be accessible to audiences that can't come to our theatre while, while they are temporarily closed is, is a good thing. So it's sort of also looking at a broader range of choice and how maybe you can have a relationship with an arts organisation that you may not physically be able to connect with. Um, thinking about global community, thinking about how that work gets out to a broader audience. So it's got a very much the approach in the UK, particularly around sort of what I'd call publicly funded organisations is about artistic organisation and audience, I'd say. Yeah, I think there's something there's something around this idea of too often we think about the digital and the physical as as a as a separated binary, even on the level of audience outreach, right? Like it's like, oh, people are gonna go to the theater or they're going to watch a VR uh, or watch watch a movie. And I mean, I just think of, you know, going to a movie theater to watch uh, to watch a performance that's being done, uh, usually in London, <laughs> being broadcast to uh, some some, you know, movie theater in like the Playa del Rey. Right. Like that's how I saw Benedict Cumberbatch play Hamlet. Right. It was like sitting in a movie theater out on you know the farthest point of Los Angeles. Um, and and the the way that. The, the current batch of technology affords us to create a, a, a continuum between the physical and the digital in terms of delivery as well as in terms of the kind of stuff that gets made. Um, when when y'all are, are, are building a project, um, you know, are, are, do you tend to focus on stuff that emphasizes the spatial aspects? And, and if so, is that a matter of uh, you know, deliberate intent, or is that just what you find yourselves gravitating towards? Gosh, I, I think of the Magic yeah. Leap project as one of those. Yeah, I mean, that came through, like, so when we did the Tempest, so one of the things is you have a thousand people come see a show a night, and um, and that's a glorious thing, and it's like super live and immersive in a, in a very physical sense, but we did a Snapchat filter for one day only in a wet, cold November UK kind of day, and... Um, you could aerialize your face. So we took the design of Ariel's face and put that on a Snapchat filter. And, and we reached 7.5 million people in a day, UK only. And we were like, whoa, what do you do with that? How do you make that meaningful? How do you, how do you think about that in a different way? And I suppose the magic, coming with the magic leap idea, that was, that was partly a response to that, is that, you know, how can we enable people to have performance in the environment that they're comfortable in it doesn't none of it like you say no none of it takes away the fact that we like to read a book a physical book but we might have a kindle or we like to go we like to go to the theater because we'll have dinner and we might see someone we haven't seen for a long time and that's special and and we might have a it might turn it into an event and but there are ways we can connect uh, connect now theatrically that that broaden that and and that is super interesting and that's an opportunity but also that's generationally um what i've seen is that 
for me, it's not about the present tense. It's about that we're in a generation where this will be the only generation where we have an analogue workforce and a digital workforce in the, in the same time frame. And that's very different. And for me, again, looking back at The Tempest, we had a lot of our core audiences go in with the Shakespeare, but come out with the spectacle of the technology. But we also had this younger generation of audience that may not have come to our theatre come in with that technology, come in through the collaboration with Intel and the Imaginarium and motion capture, but they came out with the Shakespeare. And I spoke to many young people and students who came to see that play, and I'd always ask them, what was your favourite bit? And pretty much every time their favourite bit was the drinking scene between Stefano and Trincolo. And there's no, there's no technology in that. It's just two actors having a laugh on stage, talking saying some rude jokes, getting drunk. And I think that's delightful. And I think that is the opening up of the, going back to Patrick's question around, why is that push around digital space? The terminology I don't feel is quite right. We use the word digital in not quite the right way. What we're talking about is a relevance around future generations that have access to digital tools and the technologies that are very natural and they are emergent with that. And But we also have this audience and community that are not and it and I think it's how we bring those people those communities together and and don't polarize that and that for me theatre can do really well if it's thinking about it through story and not necessarily through making something be digital but why would it how could it be digital and how could those tools offer something new and delightful to those stories um, I think that's more interesting I, I really like the framing around or the thinking about it in terms of we have this, you know, sort of digital, digitalized workforce and an analog workforce. And and it made me think of, you know, I've got the whole rant about, you know, we used to escape into screens, but now we work in screens. So we want to escape into reality. And the, this idea of like, you know, like you know, the it used to be that the, the, the digital was unfamiliar. Uh, now it's it's increasingly like all we have at the moment, so um, it's, it's it's one of the things I thought that was really driving the the immersive and immersive spaces and this need to go out and see things and just and you can see that like in the the the, the scale to which music festivals got and yeah. and, and will, will hopefully be again just like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people just needing to get away from and yeah I mean, they'll have screens there and they'll be like you know pepper's ghost effects and like amazing amazing things but it's about being in the space and and yeah we we all watched beyonce you know at coachella like you know on our laptops because we didn't want to be there but that's beside <laughs> the point like that that we also were slightly jealous of all the people who were there you know it's like except we had a better seat but at the same time you know sometimes it is just better to like feel the crowd um it's it it, it the, the needs are there. It's like like together, to, to both both sides of this thing, when when brought together, just open up more possibilities than they do on their own. And, and imagine when, if you pivoted that to you had the best seat in the house, if you weren't yeah. there, uh, that you you could somehow have an agency over what was happening and connect more meaningfully. I think that again just adds an, a different perspective when we look at 
digital at the moment, it's a very broadcasting construct. So the source is the live experience and then you might have a cinema version or you might have a DVD version or a video version. You know, video is such an old term, but, you know, I'm saying it sort of like ricochets out, doesn't it? And everything gets slightly further away. But imagine if you had a distributed form of narrative that, that allowed you to have, there was less hierarchy in that. I think that would also be super interesting. So imagine if your best experience was, you know, on your tabletop. That would be interesting um i think for where we are now not the solution doesn't re replace anything but just interesting we've got another one in the amy wow. but, but, but i thought of something real fast that i want to kind of dive into here um a lot of the projects that we've talked about coming out of your shop are are rather performance-based how much have you looked at interaction and and audience agency uh, in in the conversations that you have and in the projects that you're that, that that maybe are to come. Oh wow, yeah, audience agency. There is a a very um, you have to be really careful with that. Is that do you really mean that you're giving audience agency or are you just being a benign dictator and letting them feel that way? And there's nothing more dis disappointing for an audience if they if that has happened to them. And I think that's quite important. Um, but if you can give your audience agency where they can impact on 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 the the, the the performance in real time i think that if you get that right i think um i think that can be very special and i think where we were looking at it is that you you come into a space and you're on your own and then through that experience you might become more collective so there's something around theater you know we often talk about theater not being immersive in the traditional sense and i would just argue you don't feel that way because you're all sat in a chair looking at the same thing, but you are immersed and you are together. And I think that what we were doing is breaking that apart a little bit and going, you come in as an individual, but you might have to do something in that experience that if you don't do together, you can't hear the whole experience or you can't, the whole piece doesn't work without you. And I think that's, for me, that I, I got very moved by that. And I, I, I'm hoping that's something that we'll keep exploring really. Um, and I think people like Punch Drunk have done that phenomenally well over the last couple of decades. All right. Turning to the queue, Catherine, who do we have next? All right. We are passing over the digital mic to Sophie of Any One Thing based out of London. <laughs> I love Sophie. Sophie, you will need to unmute your mic. Uh, Otherwise, we will go ahead and read the question. All right. <laughs> Catherine, go ahead and read the question. It's a good question. Yeah, yeah they're really, really meaty questions. Um, so Sophie is the theater, uh, theater director and the artistic director of Any One Thing based out of London. Their work to date has placed an importance on the integrity of the writing, narrative structure, and character arc in the immersive world. So far, they have worked with playwrights who are pushing their craft beyond the traditional theatrical form, and they're now keen to dig deeper into the characters and worlds they've created. Uh, Sophie's interested in the idea of working with game writers to help them do that. So where do you find game writers who are keen to work with theater folks? What are the challenges of working with the two different types of writers on the same project? Which tools, software can be used to share ideas? And surely you're not doing a good old-fashioned script when bringing these two worlds together. So brilliant. Uh, such a brilliant question because there's so many things in that where I'm like, yep, 
yeah i we've been through similar things i'm sure um so firstly so we found our gaming writers through working with magic leap um and many of them come from that industry so again it was just a really nice that collaboration has been a really nice natural fit for us and there's so many creatives and technologists that we're working with there so we didn't um we didn't sort of go out and put a tender out to any sort of game studio or anything like that it sort of evolved through recommendation and conversation and just fit um we also launched these fellowships last year for um theater and technology working with magic leap and again through that got closer to the gaming industry because we were deliberately looking for fellowships for people um that were coming from a gaming background as well as a theater background so that's how we we connected there um and i'm happy to to share my connections with those people if if that's helpful after this but um yeah they we did we did dig deep and it, it and it at the beginning though to be honest it's language it's like anything it's it's the acronyms you use it's the it's the shorthand you use in whatever industry you're in and you just have to unpick that for a bit so we did a series of workshops where we just had to gather around uh the play that we were looking at um and sort of deep dig deep into that and just listen so um gaming character gaming writers were very different in their process and came with things very quickly and very immediately and we we just gave that time to settle but they were really they were really good at listening to our like dramaturgically and they were there because they wanted to look at it together um but yeah there were challenges um particularly tools and software you know obviously there's loads of different ways of working we just shared with each other our tools and and we we learned new tools actually we we weren't new we 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 entered into it in the spirit of that and i think that was really important and then we didn't know we didn't make an old fashioned script uh, it was very much like a a bible um working with narrative beats that that we described and and we just created that um structure ourselves not working with anything that we shouldn't shouldn't be doing so um that's that's where we've got to with it so so yeah but there is scripting of course in it and the questions dramaturgically are the same um but yeah you just have to find those methods and methodologies and it yeah it just i think the whole process just takes you a bit longer uh, fundamentally and it's all about people and language effectively um but if you go in the spirit of listening to that then then you certainly it it, it certainly evolves We've had some conversations over the weekend, and, and, and I've seen a couple of different, you know, takes here. Um, do, do you think that as we roll forward and these different disciplines come into contact more often that we're going to need a common tongue or that we're going to be able to, or that maybe that we get more out of it by having folks have such distinct ways of working and kind of coming together and and learning how each other work and flipping kind of back and forth between those modes or at least or having someone kind of conversant in both languages in order to let everyone kind of run farther out in in, in their own native uh, yeah. directions i personally think the role of producer is really really crucial here because they're the translator and i think that um they're often a very unsung hero in in these sorts of situations and i think that this work because it's naturally evolving and it hasn't got the um 
uh, what I would call, um, it's not been locked down yet, which for some is super challenging and some super exciting. So it's working with the right people at the right time. But I think producers are helping to provide some structure around that. So it doesn't always come from the writers. The writers need the, the, the producers holding that and supporting that. And in theatre in particular, producers are the people that um, know when to be quiet and then also know when to, to really call it and challenge it and, and make sure that the audience is being heard in the process. So I think I think some sort of systems will evolve around how to do this work. But I think there'll always be the people that, that create their own processes. Um, for example, certain arts organisations have just a very specific process that they use to make their work. And I think that individual identity then shows on stage. So there's two things there. There's the broader arching processes and then there's the, the individual ones that, that make people's work their, their yeah, identity. I think there's some, yeah, no, that... that, that, that idea of like you know an individual company having an identity and having their own language and, and and methodology i think that might be some of the the desire that i see expressed when people say we need a like a, a, a central language it's yeah like your company you, you know you want to work and you want to have your your idiosyncrat you know idiosyncrasy which is great because then you wind up having that language you have that voice i i can kind of liken it to you know I'm going to go full theater nerd, uh, you know, like getting exposed to like Ben Johnson's Volpone after having finally like understood Shakespeare back in high <laughs> school and finally, finally starting to get it. Like you, know, you start in high school, you're reading Shakespeare and you're like, why is it being, why is it like this? Like, why does it have to be like, it's so elaborate. And then one day you wake up and your brain's been fixed to iambic pentameter and like it's just flowing naturally like oh i get it now and then someone drops you know ben johnson in your lap and you're like this is not like it. they were contemporaries how how the yeah. hell were they contemporaries this is completely different you are fucking with me sorry we haven't even cursed <laughs> yet this one i just got the explicit tag on this episode um but nevertheless like like that that being like a real thing and then being able to go and you know like going to see a a, a a piece of Brecht and then going to see something like, and I haven't yet, but a Harry Potter and the Cursed Child and like could not be more different and yet are both plays, are both theater and yet have an entirely different, you know, you know, language except for the people who are pulling on the rigging lines because that's where you have to like have the same language um, so that no one gets hit in the head. You make a super important point here, which is when you are emerging um, possibly new forms or new processes, if you homogenize that, if you go, OK, that's how you do theatre in this way, or that's how you do the visual, you know, immersive storytelling in, in, in this form, that's such a shame. And actually, you want to be really careful that you're providing scaffolding and structures where people can financially support it and audiences have a clear pathway to getting it. But artistically, you you really want to make sure that people's signatures and identities are on that work because homogenizing it would be an absolute shame. And actually putting the diversity in it will, will then explode the possibilities as well. So it's a real left brain, right brain um, challenge. But, yeah, that's why I love seeing certain pieces of theatre by certain companies and I'll go to see or I love a certain artist, whatever art form, it's because they're them. Um, and, and that's their signature. And I think that's the, also the intimacy of it. And when we're looking at virtual connection, maybe for the longer term, 
how do we create those signatures? How do we create the, 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 that, that connection, that personality in these spaces will be really, really important. And we'll have to think really carefully around how we architect that and support that. So when you're an artist, for example, in a virtual space, how do I want you to feel? How do I want you to welcome you into that space? What are the rituals I want to put around that for you to experience this when I can't see you or be with you? How do I want to do that? I think um, artists are brilliantly placed for that. And again, looking at these remote technologies for performance, you need yeah. the artist to remind you of that. Yeah. I mean, art and culture is this dance between standards and signatures. Um, you know, like we, we do need, we do need, you know, like, okay, you know, uh, you know, we, I need a coder who understands unity. Uh, I need an electrician, you know, I need, I need someone who knows how to program a light board. You know, I know someone, I need someone who knows how to, you know, operate the, the mocap rig. Um, you know, I need someone who knows how to navigate the permit system of Los Angeles in order for us to secure <laughs> a building. We always need those. Um, but at the same time, you need, you need voice, right? You know, like not every pop song uh, is exactly the same. That's what makes that's what makes pop go forward, even though so many pop songs are exactly the same. It's the ones that stand out, that, that bend it a little bit, that keep things fresh and alive and keep it mattering. Um, uh, totally. So, yeah. Um, the AMAQ is empty at the moment. Uh, we're closing in on about 45 minutes here. But, um, Sarah, what, what's... Let me, let, me, let me divide this into, again... BCAC, this question. Uh, <laughs> and, and hopefully some of the stuff that's BC will be AC as well. What was exciting you? Um, and what do you hope to see once we all emerge from our caves again? Like, what was the work that was getting you excited? Um, and maybe some of that Gosh. work can be seen while we're all, you know. Oh, totally. Caves. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think the world building aspect for me was was super exciting just to sort of see um, the the projects we were working on evolve through um, space and that can be physical or virtual and, and creating a, a believable um, narrative around that that maybe permeates out not just you going to sit, you know, not just you going in a space, but when does that play start? How can I take you from the world of the play? Does that play start six weeks from when you might experience it together with other people? And how can you have a connection with that? And that's been going along on a long time in ARG and, and all of that type of stuff. But to see that more immersively was super exciting. Um, I also think something around um, uh, sort of having the audience be part, be, be part of the the design of it and, and what other people are hearing. So when we talk about agency, sort of um, looking at gesture, gesturement and, and for example, being able to use um, tools that will allow them, if they move, then the, the play changes and then for them to work that out. And that was in a physical sense, but that could happen in a, in a remote sense too. So these are just ideas. How do we get a greater connection with the world of the play and the and the person experiencing it, and how do we get them closer? Because I think those those are the boundaries that are being blurred right now that are super interesting. That, that what I've seen over the past few years in terms of you know virtual reality, when people are putting headsets on, that's 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 what it wants. But also, 
um, that's what happened in theatre all the time anyway, and just bringing that out more and making that more live. And then also seeing how the actors respond, to be honest as well, seeing how actors um, are excited by the tools and then the designers are excited by the tools to maybe make work that just doesn't look like the work we've made before. It's actually a very simple but super exciting thing is when you can really feel like you just go, this just feels very different for us. Who could we connect with? Who haven't we met yet that might want to connect with us for that reason? All right, we've got another question in the AMA queue. Um, our most, oh yes, sorry, Catherine, do you need to? Yeah, go ahead, Tara. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious if you could talk about any experiences you've had with playtesting or user testing with these interactive experiences while they're in development, um, things that you learned so we were just so we were just about to go into this phase so we haven't done it with the project that i was most recently working on um but the play testing that we have done previously is just hilarious because all the assumptions that you make out of audiences is completely wrong and they're like cats and they just go and find the thing that you would try to hide um god love them uh love an audience member um and they and you cannot you cannot hide from them so anything that you fudge they will find um so so yeah unfortunately we just weren't at that phase on this particular project but when we did for example um bringing bring in audiences uh and and such like testing is sort of like um field of view what you can see what you don't have you don't have to put as much out there so when you're for example making something that you feel should be really photorealistic or literal um, don't don't assume the audience is stupid. They can work it out themselves and and let them let them do that and give them space for that. Sometimes we overfill the experiences, um, and actually user testing often says no. You don't need all of that direct. You know, often you're filling it because you're not curating it well enough, or you've not communicated that story well enough, or they're not being with the story. So often we overcompensate and actually the user testing just helps us pare that down and bring that back and calibrate that. Um, and and the sooner you can do it, the better, actually, because otherwise you'll just fill the space. Um, and often less is more simple, simple and effective um, audience uh, so narrative can, beats works best. So you're, you're kind of suggesting that there's, there's a, a dynamic between that instinct to just like load up the 360 so that there's always something for someone to look at and and actually having points of focus and and there being sort of meaning and and sort of trusting that they will that the audience will latch yes. on to what it is you're actually trying to communicate you've got to let it go a bit to be honest um mm. it's what i've found and, and audiences are happy to sit and be with an experience more than yeah more than you realize um and those though through user testing those there's variants there of course but you know it's just having that moment for an audience to to just take it in sometimes um we forget yeah. it's interesting because I, I was reading some reviews because i unfortunately don't have the kit to play half-life alex which is the the first kind of triple a um vr video game put out by valve the people who designed the the um you know the, the the vive um and sort of did a lot of the the headway work on in vr and 
they talk about the combat in that game and you know you might be facing off against two enemies in a shootout wherein you know the previous version of the game which was just on you know computer you know there'd be 12 would would make it a challenge but suddenly when you're embodied and you're in an environment and there's all this stuff going on you know uh a two-person shootout becomes incredibly tense in a way that just on a video game screen it isn't and i've watched people who are there's a guy i follow uh ben lang who who's uh the road to vr guy and he he put a tweet out you know about 24 hours after it it came you know, the game came out he was like you know in before people start saying like the the combat in, in this sucks uh, no i didn't wait for it. i didn't play it on a vr i played it on the the unofficial mod on my computer and it's just this idea that the flat experience of playing this game, you know, on the computer and the reason why video games constantly have something blinging and blooping and whatnot is just to distract you from the fact that you're doing something inter- terribly mundane. Uh, but in, in an embodied experience, you don't need all that and it becomes a massive distraction and indeed watching the first wave of VR game developers start off with like the total terrible combat noise and then discovering, oh no, people can't even, they don't even know where to look. We got to give it time to breathe. We got to give them moments to sort of settle into the environment and start learning how to read it. Um, and it's why so many, so many virtual reality experiences right from the start started to have almost this like meditative quality to them because you're, you're adapting to a new environment when you get plugged into one of those and, and you want to imbue meaning on anything. So if you put too much in people's view, they start ascribing meaning to stuff that's really just meant to be filler. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, we, the AMAQ is empty. So here's what we're going to do. Um, and this will sadly make it in the podcast. We're going to wrap up the podcast now part. And then, uh, Sarah, if you can stick around, we'll jump into the lobby and then thus like everyone's microphones will be open. So Sarah, um, uh, if folks want to follow along, uh, on, on the work you're doing, uh, what, what, what would they be best to, uh, zero their browsers into? Oh gosh. Um, so it's audience of the future. Um, so if you put that in and put live performance RSC and then that's what we're working on at the moment and we're looking at the future of live performance with a whole bunch of brilliant people it's like Star Wars bar of uh, collaboration um, and, and check it out there and, and also get in touch I'm very happy to chat about what we're up to and where we're going next all right Sarah thank you so much uh, for for taking part in uh, the, the I don't even know what to call these anymore uh- <laughs> <laughs> Whatever this was today, uh, and it's always great to be able to talk to you. I wish this was in person, but, you know, we, 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 we make do with what we can. So. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Once again, I want to thank Sarah Ellis for being our guest on the show today. Uh, you might have heard some odd bits there like there's a section i think where it slowed down and made her very busy um we're recording uh on the internet and uh in that case we were recording uh from london so not everything works every time uh that's the the nature of the beast uh but we got it through we got through and we're able to get questions in so you know 
soldiering on as best we can with all the stuff that we've got going on. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of the, the world right now. Um, I, I don't, I don't have anything insightful to add at the moment. Um, if, if I could give some advice, it would be, uh, partially to myself, like don't watch the news so much, uh, <laughs> like, uh, plug, plug in, you know, once or twice a day. Um, those are the days have been good. Uh, the days when uh, I stay plugged in all, all day long, not, not so great. Um, talk to people on the phone. I know a lot of people just love texting. No, no, no. Hear those voices, have those, have those Skypes and those Zooms and those FaceTimes. Uh, I've, I've had a couple of good, uh, hangouts with friends on FaceTime and I had like, uh, drinks with a friend yesterday on Zoom and it was really, it was great, you know, and you just lose time, you know, next thing you know, it's like, oh, it's been two hours. How, where, where'd the time go? Um, you know, you get, you get to be a human again. Um, there's a lot of interesting work uh, coming up in the next week or so, and we're going to start chronicling some of that. Uh, we've already got some reviews in the queue uh, for, for a few things. Uh, so that's going to keep on cranking forward. We're also going to be uh, publishing some stuff uh, that got completed before um, everything went to hell in a handbasket. And so expect a, expect a fair number of reviews next week as we start to hit our stride here. Um, yeah. You know as much as I do. Um, we do like hearing from you. Uh, feel free to hop on down to the Slack any old time or engage over at uh, Everything Immersive on Facebook. Uh, the backers, uh, come find me uh, on the Discord. I often uh, I did the newsletter today with the... Uh, I was just hanging out in the cafe, uh, which is uh, what we renamed the, the peanut gallery section of uh, the Discord. So there's some rooms in there. People can just hang out and work together if they so choose. I've been trying to figure out a way to like play music in it. And uh, so far, um, you know, like there's a way to like do it with Spotify-ish, but, you know, create listening parties. But weirdly enough, I don't have Spotify. I'm an Apple music guy. Um, I had a lot of CDs once upon a time. So they're all, they're all in my Apple. They're all in my iTunes. So, all right. Um... We're still working on it. I miss turntable.fm. If anyone remembers turntable.fm, it was rad. We could use it again. Someone should bring that back. I'm sure some company owns it and has permanently shut it down. So, you know, turntable.am. Sure, why not? There you go. Solve the problem for you. Uh, some Someone bring that back. We could use it right about now. All right. That's enough for me. Let's do the credits. Uh, the music for this thing is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. The sustaining backers of No Persinium are Mark Baltazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, Sydney Guillory, Jeremy Charles Hahn, and Brittany. Uh, I believe Ari's got like an online concert series going on or, or online music festival that he's doing. Uh, it got written up in uh, Billboard and uh, Rolling Stone this week. So uh, you just type in A R I H E R S T A N D and Billboard and, uh, and and festival. I think you'll find it. He's always doing something interesting. Just want to say, no one asked me to do that. It's just you know, I pay attention, kind of. All right. Until next time, I'll see you around the web. <laughs>